I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Michelle O'Brien and Nico Fuentes, who coordinate and facilitate the New York City Trans Oral History Project, an online growing public archive of nearly 200 oral histories of trans New Yorkers. You can listen to these interviews online at oralhistory.nypl.org. You can also visit nyctransoralhistory.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Let's start off with introductions. I'm I'm Michelle. Um, I use she and her pronouns, Michelle O'Brien, and um, I coordinate the New York City Trans Oral History Project. My name is Nico Fuentes. Uh, I use she her pronouns, um, and I'm one of the interviewers for the New York Trans Oral History Project. And how did this project begin? Um, so uh, several years ago, uh, around 2013 and 2014, a collective of mostly trans people got together and started talking about all the stories they were hearing in sort of trans organizing and trans social services in uh, New York City and the value of beginning to try to collect these stories into an oral history archive. Um, and there's been a lot of interest in queer oral history over the years and various trans oral history projects, small ones have started here or there, but no one had really done it in New York. And they uh, partnered with the New York Public Library and continued to function as an independent and autonomous collective. But the library hosts uh, the interviews conducted. And over, I was hired at the end of 2016 as a coordinator and um, just working six hours a week, mostly coordinating volunteers. And uh, in that time, we've collected 196 interviews and uh, they're all online. They're all available for anyone to listen to uh, on a platform hosted by the New York Public Library. Uh, Nearly all of them are transcribed. And they really reflect an immense range of stories of trans New Yorkers talking about our lives. Um, the project sort of has a, has a mission statement that really prioritizes uh, the putting our energy into collecting voices of working class trans people, trans people of color who've dealt with immigration issues, incarceration, poverty, welfare struggles, things like that. But we also have a very inclusive model that really welcomes anyone to be able to interview trans people in their lives. And that that these two pieces together means that we end up with a pretty diverse archive uh, on a lot of levels. Um, And I I have a lot to say about it. It's a wonderful project. I encourage people to listen to interviews. Uh, And I think we're kind of here today in part to reflect a little bit on what has become an increasingly analytical dimension um, uh, of our trying to make sense of the transformative power of listening um, that we have found and discovered in the course of the project. Do you want to talk some, Nico, about how you got involved and what that's been like? Yeah, my involvement with the project started when Michelle actually interviewed me for um, for it. Um, at the time, I think you were doing um, your dissertation research. Um, 
and um, I had been involved um, in a um, contract campaign for um, a sex shop workers union at um, the pleasure chest for quite a quite a while um, and Michelle approached me and asked if if we could talk uh, and have it recorded um, and uh, after uh, recording my interview, Michelle was like, would you like to start doing interviews? Um, and it took me a while. I was like a little like, oh, yeah, I don't, yeah, that sounds great. And then uh, finally I started doing it. And um, as Michelle said, there is um, there's an entire political dimension and way of thinking about the project um, for me and I know for Michelle too. Um, and something that's emerged for the both of us is that there, there's something psychoanalytic um, to think about um, with this project, which is, has been really compelling for me. And you said also that people can interview people in their own lives? Yeah, we provide the support and tools for anyone to be able to be an interviewer. We have a uh, collective website where we post a handbook that has some general advice about interviewing. I um, meet up with people if we're not in the middle of a pandemic and lend people recorders. Um, folks can do interviews over Zoom or Skype uh, during in these current conditions. And I'm also always available um, because we have so few interviewers at any given time. Uh, if somebody is actually moving ahead with interviews, I'm always happy to chat with them and uh, answer their questions. And then they conduct the interview and I post it. And um, we don't match interviewers and narrators. And that provides some level of support and containment in that um, it really takes some work to schedule an interview. It takes building trust over time. People have a lot of anxiety around sharing their stories publicly. And um, so a pre-existing relationship of some sort, even if people don't know each other very well, maybe they're in the same networks or have a mutual friend. So uh, we welcome anyone to interview trans people in their lives, in their networks, and who might be interested in sharing their stories and that you might be excited to sit down and listen to what they have to say for a couple of hours. Um, most of our interviewers are trans, but that's not a requirement at all. Cool. So how have you think, been thinking about it psychoanalytically? It's still coming together. I, there's so many questions that I encounter um, when thinking about the project and, and so many questions that come up when I'm doing interviews themselves. Um, I mean, I, I have a... a <clears throat> my relationship to psychoanalysis is, is, is developing and I'm in the process of of, of figuring out um, uh, kind of where I fit in in terms of the field itself and um, kind of entry points into it and uh, my own experience um, in therapy and, and whatnot. Um, and um, I guess I, I, before I started with the uh, New York Trans Oral History Project, I was already really invested in reading um, and kind of studying psychoanalytic theory, specifically Lacanian um, psychoanalysis. And it was actually at um, kind of like on the shop floor itself where I kind of encountered uh, Lacan and uh, was invested in a lot of, of dialogue back and forth with a really great patient friend of mine um, who kind of was like, you know, we were just chatting a lot and a lot and a lot about um, discourse and um, kind of different ways of thinking. And I was thinking through a certain set of problems um, that were coming up uh, related to the work that I was doing at the sex shop, which um, was doing like educational work and also meeting with people like every day who were coming with all of these questions and demands about their sex lives, which I was, had no idea about. But then there was all of these projections that I must know everything about their sex life and and the, all of these all of these frustrations and and you know it was this friend of mine who was really like oh like maybe it sounds like you kind of just want to look at things a little differently. And so that kind of was an entry point into um, thinking about psychoanalysis, which then just kind of snowballed from there. 
into me really, really becoming deeply invested into in, in the theory. Yeah, maybe I'll take Nico's lead in uh, talking about my prior relationship with analysis before getting into um, how it plays out in the Transworld History Project. So um, I got into reading Freud and Lacan in the late 90s, studying critical theory, like a lot of people were studying critical theory in the late 90s um, did. And I continued to read them. I stayed with them much more both um, than I had uh, stayed with other theorists that I was reading at the time. And so I've been reading them on and off for 20-some years and uh, really enjoying their work. Um, I became a social worker at one point, but I wasn't um, drawn to doing clinical work. I was a little too political to really want to do one-on-one work that much. And um, and I, um, I wasn't that interested in oral history work. I think um, often people's memoirs um, I find to be very dull, like stories, people telling stories about their lives that are very carefully scripted and very carefully edited and very carefully sort of presented in this particular way, I often find to be very boring. Um, But it's really um, doing this oral history work has opened up my relationship to this kind of analytical dimension very differently. I've been in analysis myself for a long time and really enjoyed it and have gotten a lot out of it. But in the oral history work, it actually, my experience as a listener helped a lot of things move in my own analysis very dynamically and really helped open up my analysis. And it became clear uh, gradually, very gradually doing like, you know, two or three interviews a month over the course of years, um, that there was something else happening that I didn't see in well-scripted memoirs. There was something else powerful and fascinating that would happen as people shared their stories in an open-ended, unexpected, dynamic way. And it wasn't until an oral history training with Suzanne Snyder at the Oral History Summer School that she actually used some Freudian terminology to refer to what we were doing and had us read a little bit of light psychoanalytic theory to talk about oral history. And it all clicked into place. I'm like, oh, my God, I love oral history because it has, as Suzanne Snyder talks about it, this very powerful dimension of giving the space for someone to say something new about themselves, something Mm -hmm. unexpected about themselves. And in so doing, like this kind of productive space offers a transformative moment for both the interviewer and the narrator. And that this really embodied the interviews that I found to be most exciting and most moving. And I recognize that although part of what I'm doing is letting people tell their stories however they want, part of what I'm doing is trying to gather a historical record of trans life in New York over the last few decades. Another part of what I'm doing is trying to open up this space of listening that has a transformative impact. And as I, you know, I've spent the last four years doing lots of oral history interviews, it has really led me to be like, oh, I really want to be an analyst. That's where I want to go. And right now I'm attending these virtual open houses at various institutes around, sort of trying to get a sense of where I might want to enroll. And meanwhile, finishing a PhD in sociology, which, although related to trans life, is not related to this analytical dimension at all. So it's like uh, this work in some ways has led me into really deeply appreciating my own clinical experience as a analysts and uh, appreciating analysis as a sort of theoretical school and really appreciating how remarkable listening can be. Um, And I I have a lot more to say. I want to let Nico talk for a while, but a lot more to say about how thinking about oral history alongside thinking about analysis has really been the main site of how I've developed and improved as an interviewer. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the um, experience of I mean, the, the interviews are, are really sizable. You know, it's two hours of of really listening to somebody, and and it like as Michelle said earlier, it takes a lot of work to get somebody to sit with you. You know, it's 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 a lot of emailing back and forth, especially finding um, like a place where 
um, like you can even meet. And then all of the challenges of New York City, where it's like so hard to find uh, a place that's quiet to record. Um, and then there's all of this tension and all of this buildup. And then you finally, uh, somebody agrees to finally sit with you. And then for two hours, all you're asking them is to, to talk. Um, and this has been profoundly moving to me, this, this, this trust that happens there, this risk that, um, is taken when, um, somebody agrees to let me listen to them. Um, and Something unique also that I find about it, particularly about the project, is that it has a very clear direction and motivation for um, what it's doing in a, in a political sense. Um, that it's, it's very, it takes very serious um, uh, people's lives, and um, oftentimes I, I think that uh, trans people encounter such um, really terrible. Um, have like such terrible encounters with, um, you know, being medicalized constantly, being pathologized constantly, and um, you know, having doctors or social workers or even therapists who or analysts or analysts <laughs> who, who really kind of just contribute to hystericize or, or contri contribute to um, not finding care or having just somebody to listen to them. Um, so the, uh, the people involved with the project, I find to be just really invested in being open to the experience of, uh, at least the people doing interviews, being open to the experience of just listening to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, and really listening. I really, think, like really you're saying, listening. that's like where an analysis is at its best is when it's opening up. Like in one of the descriptions you wrote on one of the websites, it said like people are finding themselves saying surprising and unexpected things. And that's mm. when an analysis is at its best. And like you pointed mm. out, Michelle, it's like how, has, how did it happen at some point where analysis started putting everyone in boxes and closing down discourse and dialogue and labeling and pathologizing everyone and it's been like that for i don't know since freud was around so i really it's really a shame because when it's when it's working well and opening up these questions it's it's so useful and generative yeah there um the I do research interviews as well as my uh, oral history interviews. So I'm right now I'm sort of researching the history of this queer economic, this group called Queers for Economic Justice uh, for a chapter in my dissertation. And so I'm interviewing a lot of different kinds of people. And those interviews are really motivated. Like I'm trying to come up with a coherent argument to like make sense of what happened to the history of QEJ. And I find um, they really don't have this quality that because I come in with an agenda, uh, I uh, the space of listening never really opens up. Like I'm never really touched by what people are saying. I mean, I am in a ways, but not in this um, dimension where I'm altered in the process of listening. And similarly, the agenda really disrupts other people from saying something particularly unexpected for them or or powerful for them. And in the uh, Trans World History Project, we have an agenda on some level, but the difference is that a core part of that agenda is recognizing the complexity, diversity, and contradictions of trans life, that there are very specific narratives from medical authorities, legal authorities that we have about trans people, and then, you know, a handful of trans celebrities that are managed to write books or whatnot, but we really don't know that much about the range of trans experience and the form that that takes, and the only way we're going to learn about that is to actually sit down and listen, that, that the experience of listening, of saying something new, of saying something unexpected, of getting out of the scripted narratives that trans people have to rehearse mm -hmm. to medical experts and institutional experts in order to be able to access care, that getting out of that is the process of discovering about our own lives. And that is actually fully compatible with our racial and economic justice agenda in the Trans Oral History Project. So it's a different kind of an agenda, an agenda that really necessitates 
people exploring new parts of themselves. And similarly, analysis, I think, has a agenda of helping people, but that agenda can only be actualized if people are able to speak freely. And that that's a very different way of listening than we usually do in our lives, and and one that has been so precious to me, so deeply precious to get to engage in this project. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really good point too, because maybe that's why analysis took this kind of wrong turn, kind of so early on in its development, was because they were trying so much to like legitimize it and make it fit in with medical models and make it fit in with scientific models and all of these things that it kind of derailed or like pushed the actual listening to the side in favor of like trying to justify why it should be in existence in the first place. We've started incorporating some of these elements into how we train inter, uh, interviewers, and we had we brought in Susan Snyder for a training that we did at one point that Nico participated in, and some of the elements that we're really emphasizing we didn't used to emphasize a few years ago before we started thinking about this analytical dimension, and one of them that Nico has spoken at some length about is the power of silence, of that the rule of thumb is you count for seven to seven slowly after the person finishes speaking before you ask the next question. And this encourages the person. It flags to them that they have space to share whatever they want. It encourages a person to follow up on their own terms. And it, it sort of creates space of patience. Um, do you want to say a little bit about your experience around silence, Nico? Yeah. I mean, one of the... Uh, you know, at, when I first started with the Trans Oral History Project, like I had said earlier, I was um, working on a shop floor of a sex shop. So I was encountering dozens of people every day coming with very serious things about their lives and vulnerabilities about sex and sexuality and gender and all of these um, complex things. And I've been doing that work for five years um, and um, kind of you know, started to learn some things and see some patterns about, um, like what happens if, if we fall into, um, different, if like we lean further into some of our own impulses to kind of like just um, speak over somebody or, or to immediately respond to, um, to somebody's, um, demands. Um, and, Silence is this really tension-raising thing that I'm, I'm still learning so much about. Um, it, it feels it's it's to really really focus on silence um, feels in in the moment so precarious because somebody is is speaking to you and there is you, there are all of these things going um, through your mind as an, an interviewer. Um, and so many um, things that you want to catch, that you want to uh, pick up on, like what was the address um, of that place that you all used to meet at all the time? What was the name of that club? What was, who were the people, like what were their names? Um, and sometimes those things are really helpful, but then sometimes it can actually just really disrupt um, the flow and, and the, the, the movement of, of somebody's words. Um, and this silence can really bring out um i'm finding like these these just really these morsels of, of somebody's um truth of their like their 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 subjectivity um which i'm still so curious about I'm still so curious and and full of of urgencies to respond to to things that come up for me and to to try and develop a practice of, of pulling back from it and just letting the, the tensions be there and the silence to be bloated and, and to sit. Um, oftentimes, my, my approach with um, people is I often tell them, um, I've interviewed friends before, um, and I'm always like, well, this is like a little bit of a different dynamic than we would normally engage with, and I won't be doing a lot of talking um, and really just invite you to to do all of the talking and I might have questions here and there to kind of guide things as they unfold. 
Um, and I, it's very anxiety inducing. I mean, I experience that all the time where I'm like, you mean you're not going to ask me questions? Like, what am I supposed to say? I have nothing to say. But then of course a lot always comes up. Um, and I think it's very strange for people at first to, to, cause obviously they want to know, well, like, like why, why do you want to interview me and try to keep it as general and broad so as to not kind of make somebody say things that they think I want them to hear. But of course that might happen. Um, and again, I met with all of these different tensions that are really, really so peculiar and so individual with each person that I encounter. Another element that we've tried to incorporate into our trainings is how you ask follow-up questions, that it's sort of easy uh, to go in with a list of questions that you ask one after the other, and that that um, it sort of in, often leads people, and it has some value because people lead these really rich, incredible lives where they did a lot of concrete, amazing things that you want to ask about. Um, but it, that can also lead people to think that you have like – uh, a list of things to get through and their answers should be succinct and tidy and like, uh, and not ramble. And <laughs> in some ways that makes for bad interviews um, that, you know, looping around to some of the questions that I, or topics that I wanted to ask about at some point, it can be helpful, but um, much more, I, I try to be very attuned to follow up questions that are going to, um, that they've already gestured to, but sometimes very subtly. So they're tell a story and I, uh, a sense arises in me as they're speaking of some other element of it, of a person they mentioned, of a place they mentioned, of a, uh, a, a sort of an aspect of the event or a theme of the event. And I have a sense that if I ask about that, they're really going to have something to say and something to say that is close for them, that they're not, they won't be startling. They won't have to like dig around for it. It's like, as they tell the story, there's this other path that they gesture to. And it's very subtle. Like sometimes when I go back over the transcripts, I can't see it. I can't see where they were gesturing, but the thought arises in me and I can only spot it. And I ask the follow-up question. It's a perfect question. And the person leaps on the question, has a lot to say about it. And what they say is new. What they say is interesting. Um, um, but I can only be open to it when I'm really mindful of what my own um, baggage looks like that like people share very painful stories. And if I get too sucked into my reaction to their story, I'm no longer attuned to what the gestures towards what they have to say, the potential of a follow-up question. And so knowing what kind of stories I'm reactive to, that I have different kinds of reactions to, and being able to spot what's my reaction, then helps me be able to spot what are the thoughts and feelings that are coming up in me that are actually being gestured at by them that are coming from someplace other than my own history and my own baggage. And that doesn't mean my baggage is irrelevant. There are ways that I might be able to use it, but um, that kind of attunement requires a level of self-knowledge about what my own obstacles are to listening. Mm -hmm. What has your experience, Nico, been with follow-up questions? Um. Yeah, the follow-up questions are, are are always a challenge because it's so easy. The, the easiest thing to do is, is follow up with a closed question, um, something kind of that is just like a one-word a one answer or a really specific detail. And, of course, sometimes those things are important because there is a, maybe an important detail that's relevant to somebody's lives or that's like really historically um, relevant. Um, but I, there's so many experiences that I've had with what you're talking about, Michelle, of the gesturing to something else and, and just, if, just following that, that that's, um, really, 
yeah, it's really can illuminate so much more about what somebody um, might be trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly why I keep the these podcasts more open and free form because I've had other people doing interviews with me where they already have like a prescribed list of things they want to ask and then it doesn't allow the kind of conversation to unfold as naturally if it like gets you kind of out of what you were saying and instead of feeling like you can get into that space where you where you don't know where it's going to go and something really interesting might mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the more, um, with some earlier experiences, um, with it and, and Suzanne Snyder's facilitation of her, her oral history, um, training, there was a lot of, um, there was kind of some sizable debate about, um, you know, the, the tension that exists there when, when, um, we're listening to somebody talk in our day-to-day life and how easy it is to try and interpret, um, and really resisting interpretation, um, that, um, has, is really extremely important, um, not only to me, but I know other people involved, um, with the project as well, who are conducting interviews that, um, that we're really resisting interpretation of any, of anything anybody is saying and just really allowing, um, it all to, to, to happen in, in the room or during the interview. Um, and this can be really interesting when, um, somebody is thinking through their own political discourse. Um, when somebody says something that surprises me or that, that, that seems to be at odds with my own political viewpoint. Um, and they're thinking about some of the interviews that I've done and thinking about maybe some of the aims of the project politically. Um, I find really challenging to, to, and I, I, I find myself trying to think through them al- along with the psychoanalytic, um, theoretical framework um, of politics and, and discourse um, that emerges in, in the interviews. I don't know if you want to say more about that, Michelle, about politics and, and discourse <laughs> in, in the oral history project. A lot of uh, my interviews are with political activists. I, put, I prioritize that to some extent, and I particularly interview a lot of socialist and communist trans people uh, and trans people with a long organizing background. And then to some extent, um, a fair number of trans people that have been a part of sex worker organizing. Um, and I'm sort of really interested in these political moments in ACT UP or in trans rights groups of various sorts and trans rights campaigns and or in their socialist organizations or other things. And um, that history is really interesting to me and I really value it. Um, But the danger of interviewing activists, the tricky part, and we find this with artists as well, is that they're much more likely to have highly scripted, narrow versions of what happened. That, you know, that there's... um, Unfortunately, I think there's uh, the spaces in political organizing for really systematic, open-ended evaluation of what worked and what didn't uh, in the course of organizing um, is uh, is somewhat limited. Some people do that. Many people don't. And instead, what we do is we construct these mythologies about our work, like these um, – relatively trite stories about how noble we were. And, you know, there's a lot of nobility. It's not all false, but there's, it's very limiting and it's very difficult to think about mistakes we made. It's very difficult to think about 
stuff that we were thinking and feeling that doesn't match up to what our stated political goals are. And it's very difficult for thinking about some of the contradictions of how much energy we put into engaging in a way that actually undermines our stated goals. And um, and this is all, you know, um, you can sort of lump this stuff a little bit under like mistakes or bad organizing, but I think there's something else there that like if there was really room to explore what our feelings were and the contradictions of what was happening at the time, exploring what it was, what we actually experienced in the course of it, maybe we would discover something about why organizing works or doesn't, that within the framework of the organizing, we rarely are able to discover that. We, we might be able to discover something about what kind of um, investments and passions and emotional contradictions people bring to their political work. And that the sort of space of listening and memory can open up an opportunity to reflect on this whole dimension of organizing that we really struggle to acknowledge. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm able to connect to this by asking people when they're talking about political events, asking them something very concrete about their own experience, something tactile, something sensory, something about smells or touch or a feeling that was arising in them and getting them in their like recounting this big protest they were at to shift into actually investigating their memory of of moving into their memory and touching it in new and different ways rather than just the version that they've already repeated. Mm. And I'm interested in that sort of like sensorial memory dimension. Like I don't actually care about how something smelled or how it felt, but when I ask about that, it shifts somebody into a different space of how they relate to their memory so that they're relating to their memory more directly. Um, yeah. Exactly. It like gets them out of just the intellectualization and, and the way they framed it cognitively and gets them more like into their visceral experience of what it was actually like through all their senses, what was actually yeah. happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the, um, in talking with or listening to somebody talk about their experiences and uh, and ways that they um, kind of came to um, their politic, how like what are their references? What are what is one's um, like way of thinking through that? It's really really exciting and something that um, I'm I'm keenly excited about um, with interviews is also. Um, the possibility of somebody talking about the failures of like why something didn't yeah. didn't work, why a way a specific way of thinking through a specific problem didn't work, and that the failure in there, um, which is risky to talk about publicly, um, is is really I find compelling um, and also very hard to to get somebody to talk about. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, the 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 dis the, the there's almost like a, a a discursive failure, like what what discourse didn't work at the time or currently that um, I find I, I find that I'm pursuing that in in interviews, especially particularly for the New York Trans Oral History Project, because I also you know my experience with trans people and um is often you know we're so stripped of subjectivity and so like michelle was saying there has to be such a a well curated perfect kind of narrative um but to i just to there's an i feel almost an urgency to kind of pierce through that and, and have something open up about the failures um that have happened um not just personally, but like through a political thinking, which was very much a part of, um, yeah, how I even kind of started thinking 
more about psychoanalysis was um, on the shop floor in a moment where my political framework was beginning to kind of fail and fracture um, and kind of needed something else, a different way of thinking through um, a set of circumstances, both person, like in my own emotional life and also in a, a political way. I, I want to strongly encourage people to listen to the interviews. I think a lot of these themes, you know, we're speaking about abstractly, but are quite evident as you uh, as you listen. And both me and Nico have been interviewed, so you can hear our own stories. Um, uh, and uh, we've both done a bunch of interviews. Um, I One of my favorite interviews is with Cecilia Gentili, and I really encourage, I, I just love listening to it. She is, um, she was uh, born in Argentina during the military dictatorship, and she became a sex worker and uh, then moved to New York. She talks about this at length as a sex worker, and then ended up in nonprofit HIV social services and really hustled her way up to being the director of policy at Game and Health Crisis, a huge HIV service agency. Um, and it's quite remarkable sort of how she figured that out. It was a real hustle in more ways than one. And then um, she, since the interview, she retired um, from GMHC and started coordinating uh, uh, Decrim New York, the campaign to decriminalize sex work in New York, um, which uh, would have just an enormous impact in reducing police harassment and incarceration of trans women of color. And so Cecilia is just this incredible hero. And uh, at the beginning of the interview, um, maybe 15 minutes in or so, she's talking about her childhood um, and she talks about the smell of the orange tree in her, that her grandmother had. And then she talks about her brother, um, told her that she had been found, discovered by her parents, not, they hadn't given birth to her. He told her this is a cruel prank and they are in an area with a lot of alien activity spottings and alien UFO activity. And so she pieced together as this young child that she was from a planet where all the women had dicks. And that's <laughs> why she had a dick. And so she convinced her grandmother, who was very loved her very much and very sympathetic, to take her out to the countryside so that the aliens could come back and get her. And she packed a bag <laughs> with all the things she needed in case the aliens came and got her. And they went out and spent a few nights sort of sitting out in the desert. And, um, and then Cecilia immediately segues very smoothly into the systematic, horrific mass disappearances and mass murder by the military dictatorship. And she particularly highlights the practice of the military dictatorship of abducting the children of murdered political activists and giving them to the families of military officers. So children, her, her, her own like grappling with being an alien, you know, with being strange or different. And then this context that is making alien a huge number of children and this, you know, just this horrific violence. And like these things are closely related to each other, right? Like they're in dialogue with each other in a very profound way that you're never really going to get in most memoirs or nonfiction or lots of other places. And it's there in this like perfect smooth segue she does of just going from one to the other. And you can hear that they're linked. You can hear that that there's something in this experience of being trans and this horrific violence of the dictatorship that are really in close dialogue in her own thoughts and experience. Um, and she's been a wonderful ally to the project. She's spoken at a number of major events and recommended people to be interviewed. And we, um, I'm just so grateful that she took that time. Do you have particular interviews you want to talk a little bit about, Nico? Yeah. Um, my, I did a really, really I, I interview with um, Oni Lem, who um, is a, is fantastic. She's a sex worker and um, has been, has lived in the West Coast and also the East Coast and 
um, has done a lot of um, different political, been a part of a lot of different political groups and, and been a part of a lot of different actions related to um, uh, decarceration and, and um, early on in uh, the Occupy um, movement. Um, and going into the interview, um, this, this is a particularly special um, interview for me because I learned so much from it. Um, um, it was actually an interview that was interrupted twice, so we had to stop recording, which I have a really, I really try to not stop the interview unless somebody actually asked me um, to stop the recorder. Um, and it's an interview that's particularly special to me because Oni um, is really talking so much about love and her, the way that she is thinking about um, being a trans woman and experiencing love. Um, and in her narrative, she she's the uh, weaving something so beautiful together, and she's about to say something so spectacular about love and then somebody barges into the room and at, tells us that we need to to leave the room or um at nyu um borrowing a room and we had to stop the recorder and um there was so much desperation that i experienced in this interview um in which i wanted to get back to that moment but when we um, went to go to the recorder she she moved on into these other amazing um stories about um political actions that she had been a part of and um she spends quite a a, a sizable amount of time um talking through the way she politically sees the world and and why she came to the conclusions that she did um which is just so rich um with um information and 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 her desire for how um, the world should be and, and she actually um, speaks into the microphone to whoever is listening to to urge them to do something um, which is particularly special way of like breaking through a wall or something I don't know um, in another interview um, um, that I did um, I'm finding people are starting to talk into the to the recorder and address somebody. They're addressing somebody who is listening to it, um, which I find really curious and, and really beautiful. Yeah. I really love your point of bringing up how, um, what a privilege it is to be able to listen to people and to listen to their stories so intimately, because I think about that with this work all the time and like how much richer my life is for having been able to listen to people's stories so intimately for the past oh my god 17 years is that possible oh my goodness that's possible anyway <laughs> phew um but yeah it's like people that I would have never been able to cross paths with otherwise you know and like and just and even if I had, we wouldn't have been able to sit down and like really get into it this deeply. So it's just like it's just so enriching, and you get to experience so many different worldviews, and it's just such a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. I would really encourage some of the analysts to to listen to interviews. <laughs> I, I, I find myself often fantasizing about who I think would be who would go to the transoral history page and just go hit and click on an interview. Um, and lately, uh, with you know, kind of grappling with my my desire to be an analyst, I'm like, yeah, I, I think that analysts should be listening to these to these interviews, especially you know the ones who care about uh, care in trans people. Yeah, it's been. Very intense starting over this last year, partially as a result of the Trans World History Project trying to engage kind of the analytical community, you know, like tr trying to attend events and see speakers and be mm -hmm. on an email list and other things. And, you know, piecing together that um, that there's a decent chunk of analysts who really are so backwards about thinking about trans issues and mm -hmm. it's quite shocking like there's a 
in progressive circles, this sort of basic level of common sense of showing dignity to people and taking seriously that that people make choices about their lives and bodies that are worth trying to understand on their own terms, and um, that analysts have... Um, you know, are very mixed, and some of them uh, feel seem to feel very entitled to espouse extremely retrograde ideas. And it reminds me of reading about psychoanalysts in the 1950s and early 1960s who openly um, supported conversion therapy and the torture mm. of homosexuals for, um, you know, were like perfectly willing to use Freudian theories um, uh, towards supporting and participating in conversion therapy torture. And I think very similarly, like we can debate, have all sorts of debates about uh, sexual object choice and where it comes from and what its relationship to the Oedipal complex is and if it's biological and if it's social and what that means. And, you know, like we don't fully understand homosexuality. Like I, I'm queer. It's a legitimate topic of investigation and psychoanalysis might have something to say about that. But the, the basic ethical um, underlying commitment that people should not be tortured for their sexual object choice has not yet crossed over into a shared consensus about a basic ethical framework that, like, trans people should be able to access health care if they choose to do so. For example, which is a really basic principle, trans people should have full and equal civil rights under the law. Like these are basic ethical commitments that thankfully we figured out in the early seventies around queerness and, and gays and lesbians. And we, the, the psychoanalytic community seems to be one of the bastions of people who um, refuse to figure this out. Um, and, and meanwhile, at the same time, Nico and I aren't alone in the large numbers of trans women that I know who are very interested in psychoanalytic theory and very excited about dialoguing and debating around theories of gender emerging from trans experience and trans life and psychoanalytic theories of gender in a really dynamic, productive, and unexpected way. Like, we are interested in psychoanalysis and really want to engage it, and these trans folks are a horrific obstacle to doing so. I yes, I part of why I wanted to be on this podcast is hoping that that people might listen to the Trans Oral History Project as a means of beginning to undo some of the arrogance and condescension and confidence mm. that some analysts bring to this question and being a little more open-minded to like actually hearing about people's lives and what we mm. have to say. Yeah. I'm scared. I'm a little scared about it. Trying to, I, I mean, I've, I've been in graduate school a long time and I've never had to deal with explicit transphobia, like in a lot of academic life um, it just everyone in the room pretends like they're a man is the way I say it, like the kind of arrogance and argumentation and study. And, you know, it's just everyone acts like they're a man, even if they aren't. And like everyone shows each other the respect to pretend like the person they're speaking to is also a man. And so it's like a deep level of sexism. But nobody in the room is insulting each other, you know, like no one in the room is sort of um, making personal attacks of that sort and uh, and realizing that um, the sort of assumption of a minimal level of dignity that I get as an academic, I do do not always get from analysts. Mm. Mm. No, and analytic institutes can be really talked toxic retrograde places it's a mm. real problem it's a real serious problem and it's all but killed the whole field honestly mm. well i i need to find out what what institutes those are because i i'm probably going <laughs> we to can talk one. But yeah that would be very helpful to me yeah. <laughs> how has this stuff come up for you nico around um, possibly moving towards be becoming an analyst at some point. <laughs> it, it comes up in an overwhelming wave. 
<laughs> of, oh, wow, where's the entry point? Where's the doorway? Where's the, um, yeah, how do you, how does one um, get in? It seems to be, um, seems to be a lot of really old ideas about how, how that's supposed to work. Um, and I've uh, not always been a fan of, of keeping things around that are supposed to work. I haven't always found that those things work for <laughs> the good. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it took a, quite a long time for me to even um, say that I want to be an analyst. And, you know, that was like a whole sizable couple of years of, of me figuring out. Um, and I, I think I feel, I feel a little fortunate in that I have some really cool friends who are analysts and who are kind of like showing up and they're like, this is great. This is what you should be doing. How can we help? We'll like help you navigate and figure this out, which I think is really badass. But, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I've had some pretty unpleasant encounters with, um, you know, some people, some analysts or analysts in training, um, who haven't been the most, um, inviting or welcoming in, into the field, but you know, that it's nothing new with anything. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder kind of going back to, to my fantasy of who, who would listen to, um, interviews, for the trans uh, oral history project. And yeah, I keep returning to, yeah, I, I, I hope I want, I want analysts to, to listen to these interviews. And in some way I think of this as a way of, Oh, like maybe that'll open, open somebody up into thinking a little bit differently than, than they, they have. But yeah, it's, uh, the idea of, of the, the, they're not being quite a, quite a, it's a very, it seems like a very narrow, but unclear path of like how to become an analyst. Um, and one of the things that I seem to be hearing from, from friends is that there's a lot of actually different ways in which um, one can do that. So, yeah. And, and not just, um, transphobic analysts, but analysts really deeply concerned with trans life and, uh, trans issues in a, in a sympathetic way. Mm. I think the, uh, oral history projects can be a very powerful resource that, that, have, um, we see a relatively small number of, or analysts see a relatively small number of patients and read a relatively small number of case studies. And here is an immense archive of 200 people talking for a couple of hours about their life. And somewhere along the way, they're likely free associating in an open, dynamic, and exciting way. Um, and you can very quickly learn a lot about how people's thoughts fit together and how mm -hmm. people's experiences fit together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, for people interested in, uh, engaging the trans oral history project, you can Google it. The, it's the New York city trans oral history project to distinguish us from a few other projects elsewhere. And if you Google that, um, both our archive page and our, um, collective website come up very quickly. And we have a collective email address that I respond to on there. Um, and then you can also, I don't know, find me on, I have a website and in various other places and tried to do a little writing so far, not about psychoanalysis, mostly communist theory, but hopefully moving towards trying to think about some psychoanalytic questions and writing a little bit more with time. Um, and I certainly greatly appreciate any advice people have about what institutes are bad places. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same, like like Nico said. There's a this like idea that there's this really uh, narrow pathway in, and the, the same people that promote that idea of the narrow pathway, narrow unclear pathway to psychoanalysis, are the same retrograde thinkers that you want to avoid. So, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, more institutes should um, fund trans students. That's what I think. The White Institute has a scholarship like that, and it's a brilliant idea because you get cool people like Nico. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. That's very yeah. kind. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm very honored to be on this podcast. I, I really enjoy it a lot, and I really appreciate that it's out there and that you're putting the work into it. Well, thank you. Thank you for spending your time here. And I'm going to include links to everything in the text accompanying the episode so that people can easily find the space and listen to everyone's stories. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Michelle O'Brien and Nico Fuentes of the New York City Trans Oral History Project. For more, please visit the websites oralhistory.nypl.org and NYC transoralhistory.org and listen to these interviews online for yourself. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, this is New York. From the album Cut to Fit the Mouth, available from Trapart Editions and Highbrow Low Life. Together, they mark a deep, be called human beings, cowering in their sty, oh, and in part, a great satisfaction supersedes the trembling, be timeless, 
the content. Jagged Sword. Betty. Same. Bye. That's a great comfort. Waste. Just follow the road to of the cornucopian. Inevitable Ebby entering the third position. Injections into my head and and amused as is Florida. Making out on the street. Willingly bewitched. Tangibility. It's a real quest. Glassy-eyed passers-by. We get rid of the dreaded. Worship the full moon. To let nods like dashboard and sublingual. The end. Eating food at 1770. Soap bubbles and the cakes at Devil's Alley. Ourselves and hope for the best. Is closed but the bar. Together when be an illness cognizable. So many the human strategies. Only those who there's eke free can deserve to. If we pin, don't be afraid of majestic. Called the stench of life. It always integration of residual potential. The exotic stayed when words are no longer itself pathological. Normalization, polyperverse, bilateral flare of increasingly limited ways. You thrusting and trusting, indulgence in red lit, feeling female crevices. This is New York.